0: of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. We have spent the last few episodes talking about the anatomy of the kidneys and reviewing filtration, reabsorption, and secretion, which occurs in the structures of the nephron. Each kidney contains about 1 million or even more individual nephrons. This is the functional portion of the kidney that allows it to filter, reabsorb, and secrete. In past podcasts, we have discussed in depth loop diuretics and thiazide diuretics and today we're going to start talking about potassium sparing diuretics. Potassium sparing diuretics do just what they say they do. They act as diuretics by influencing and increasing urine output by altering sodium reabsorption in the nephron while sparing potassium allowing the body to hold on to potassium rather than excreting it via the urine. Potassium-sparing diuretics work by inhibiting sodium and potassium exchange in the late portion of the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting duct. If you remember back to our discussion on previous diuretics and the structure of the nephron, all diuretics act on some portion of the nephron to reduce sodium and water reabsorption. We talked about loop diuretics that work in the thick ascending loop of Henle, thiazide diuretics, which act on the early portion of the distal convoluted tubule, and now we are discussing potassium-sparing diuretics that work even further down the nephron pathway. Again, potassium-sparing diuretics work in this late portion of the distal convoluted tubule as well as the collecting duct to reduce the amount of sodium and water that is reabsorbed back into the bloodstream from the filtrate. The normal action of sodium channels in this portion of the nephron allows sodium to leave the filtrate and be reabsorbed back into the bloodstream by means of the sodium-potassium pump, of which then, for in exchange for a sodium molecule being reabsorbed back into the bloodstream, a potassium and a hydrogen ion will be moved into the filtrate to be excreted through the urine. Potassium-sparing diuretics work by inhibiting these sodium channels, meaning they prevent the exchange of sodium back into that bloodstream and potassium and hydrogen ions from being released into the filtrate. Of course, we remember that water follows sodium, and therefore, if we are keeping more sodium in the filtrate, we will also keep more water in the filtrate to be excreted. Inhibiting the sodium channels and reducing the amount of sodium reabsorbed, we are now altering this sodium-potassium pump, and potassium and hydrogen ions are not being filtered out into the filtrate for an exchange of that sodium molecule. All in all, we have more sodium and water staying within the filtrate and more potassium being, quote, spared or being held onto within the bloodstream. It is important to note that because patients are holding on to more potassium with potassium sparing diuretics, patients can develop hyperkalemia versus other diuretics, they typically can lead to hypokalemia or low potassium levels. An example of potassium sparing diuretics that act on this epithelial sodium channel is triamterene, and also amylaride, which is considered an epithelial sodium channel inhibitor. Now, spironolactone and niplarinone are also potassium sparing diuretics, but they are considered aldosterone antagonists and act by inhibiting the effects of aldosterone within the body by inhibiting the reabsorption of sodium and water. Indications for the use of potassium sparing diuretics can be patients with hypertension, although it's not first line. For, it's not a first-line antihypertensive therapy, but it can be used um, as a supplemental um, medication for management when first-line therapy is not achieving goals or a patient is not tolerating first-line drug therapy. Potassium-sparing diuretics are also used in patients with hypokalemia or fluid retention, such as edema caused by heart failure. It is um, a plerinone and... Um, Uh, spironolactone, being aldosterone blockers, they are part of heart failure guidelines for heart failure reduced EF patients, and they're added on as part of the guideline-directed medical therapy. Potassium-sparing diuretics such as spironolactone can help with patients who have been diagnosed with hyperaldosteronism to counteract the effects of high levels of aldosterone, which can cause elevated blood pressure and hypokalemia. We need to be aware of side effects that can occur in patients who are on potassium-bearing diuretics, and it's our role as nurses to monitor for the side effects and educate our patients so that they, too, are aware and report any adverse reactions. To start with any diuretic, you can see dehydration, which can present as low blood pressure, elevated heart rates, weakness, increased thirst, lightheadedness, and dizziness. We also want to monitor patients' input and output of fluids as we use diuretics so that we have accurate knowledge of their fluid status. Like any other diuretic, potassium sparing diuretics can cause electrolyte imbalances, specifically with potassium, and in this instance it can cause hyperkalemia. We remember that the normal potassium levels are 3.5 to approximately 5.2, and elevated potassium levels can result in arrhythmias muscle cramps and weakness, EKG changes such as tall and peak T-waves, nausea, vomiting, and palpitations. We need to be extra cautious about patients who are on potassium-sparing diuretics and also receiving an ACE inhibitor or an ARB because this can too potentiate the risk of hyperkalemia. Of course, we will monitor the potassium levels on a regular basis and with any dose adjustments. We want to educate patients to avoid or limit foods that are high in potassium, and they should not be using salt substitutes, which are also high in potassium. We want to educate our patients on other possible side effects, such as gynecomastia, menstrual problems, or sexual dysfunction, which can occur as an antiandrogen effect, specifically with spironolactone. Potassium-sparing diuretics should be avoided in patients who have hyperkalemia, hyperkalemia, renal insufficiency, chronic kidney disease, as well as Addison's disease, as these patients typically already have elevated potassium levels. I hope today's episode was helpful. I think we've gotten through all different types of diuretics. And um, remember, you can always find me on Instagram and Facebook at Let's Review RN. And I always encourage you, if you're loving the podcast, to rate and review it. And you can always click the subscribe button. And that way you'll be aware of when new episodes are out. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.